you can continue to stand with the vulture funds or you can finally say that this stops now. First time buyers, 500 a week drawing down their mortgage, the highest we've seen since I was in my late 20s. What have we done to try and help those people? If this happened in Dublin, to be sorted. Hello again, it's Your Politics, the weekly politics catch-up from the RTE team here in Leinster House. I'm Anya Lawler, with me Sandra Hurley and Paul Cunningham. I don't know why we call it Your Politics, we should call it Your RTE really, isn't it? Because that's the ongoing uh, story we seem to be telling each week, uh, nearly nine months in now uh, and counting. Uh, As we spoke last week, of course, we didn't know, um, but... um, Certainly, there was a lot happening um, over in Catherine Martin's department and it all led to that primetime interview that night. Uh, Paul, you've been writing about the sequence of events that have unfolded since. It's certainly, we're kind of beyond goo-boo territory really here, aren't we? I think the first thing to say is that people are absolutely sick to the back teeth of this. As you said, nearly nine months of going through the minutiae of report after report, um, who said what, where, when, what about the RT board, what about the executive, what about who's running it, who's here, who's that, who got an exit package. Even politicians are on these committees like the Public Accounts Committee and the Oireachtas Media Committee are sick of it. Um, and yet <laughs> there's no resolution in sight because we're going to have those two rock this committee reporting. We're going to have two Well, we could have reports. even more hearings now before we even yeah. get to that point because we saw Catherine Martin back in uh, on Tuesday evening yeah. this week. But if you take it back then, yeah, so <clears throat> we had um, the minister going before the media committee meeting and then later the following day going into um, Dáil Éireann as well and this related to what had happened on that rather exciting podcast you had list last week where we were in the middle of what is going to happen because clearly there was a problem but no one knew the gravity of the problem or what the outcome was going to be. And this was all about who knew what when about the executive ex- exit deals for Richard Collins and Rory Coveney, former RTE executives who departed the station last summer and autumn. Yeah, so basically what happened was that Catherine Martin went in and to the committee and defended her position, which was that the chair of the board at RTE had um, given her inaccurate information on two occasions um, the previous week. And when she tried to pick her up on this issue, was told that um, the chair of the board wouldn't accept a letter from the minister. She would interpret this as effectively calling her position uh, into question. And then it all blew up on the primetime programme. She didn't express confidence in the chair of the board. Three hours later, the chair of the board resigns. Q crisis, or should I say another crisis in RTE. So if you roll it on to this week, we've had a minister defending how she handled that scenario, saying that her hands were tied because it wasn't just these two issues of misinformation. There had been other occasions where she'd been given inaccurate information. And clearly from what we heard, although it was only um, Catherine Martin's side of the story, we haven't heard from Shundi Rahale. It was pretty clear that the relationship was on the precipice. Yes, and uh, Minister Martin will be meeting the board of RTE tomorrow, I understand, Friday. Yes. That board, of course, has expressed uh, confidence in Shundi Rahale, who was a chair who had uh, come in for a short period of time uh, and was seen as being somebody who was um, cleaning up the place. And also a lot of TDs questioning because the minister has spoken again and again about her relationship being with the chair of RTE yeah. and that's why the trust and not being uh, and being given any kind of inaccurate information, that's why that was so critical to her. 
The other question, of course, is sitting beside the chair of RTE at those meetings last week. And we saw them filmed on the way in and we saw them filmed on the way out was the Director General, Kevin Backhurst. And this was something that made a number of TDs on the committee on Tuesday night uh, not say, well, if you're not expressing confidence in the chair of the company, how could you be expressing confidence in its chief executive who was with that chair and with you at those self-same meetings? Yes, there was a lot of heat generated towards Kevin Backhurst uh, at the Oireachtas Committee on Tuesday. Several members of the committee, uh, as you say, uh, questioning how it was possible for the minister to retain confidence in Kevin Backhurst when she didn't have confidence in Shuni Rahali. They were sitting in the same meeting. Now, the minister has said that she does have confidence in Kevin Backhurst as the person to take RTE forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he has certainly sustained a lot of criticism this week, particularly from there's a few senators on the committee who said they don't have confidence in him anymore. It's clear, though, the government want him in place. And in fact, they need somebody in place now because they have lost the chair. The political danger here isn't over for the government. And what's been fascinating in the last week in one way, but dangerous for the government, is that there was a real kind of political threat here, whereas previously all the criticism was directly towards RTE. In the past week, it's been all about the minister. There is a fractured relationship between the department and the minister and the board. We'll have to see tomorrow what statement do we get afterwards Mm -hmm. about there'll probably be some emollient words about how they're going to work to bring things forward, work together to sort of uh, put RTE back, bring back stability. But that is an important relationship. We also, of course, are waiting for the appointment of a new chair, hope in government that that could be done by Tuesday. We don't know for definite if that is the case. But there's more danger in relation to the committees are now asking for all the documents. They're not done in trawling through the documents, the who knew what and when. And there is real issues there for the department and for Catherine Martin because there have been clear examples of the fact that the department uh, was was told that these exit packages were being approved by the board. So it's a lot for any potential new chair to take on with so many, you know, so much uncertainty, so many questions still unanswered and the possibility of more grenades in uh, and more, it's a part-time yeah. job, part-time apparently, job. but it doesn't look like it was part-time over the past year. You usually have about 10 meetings a year, so you're definitely going to have 10 days and then you're going to have to be preparing. So that's another 10 days. You're going to be on every subcommittee that's allowed. You're clearly going to be down at a Rock This Committee meetings. So you're going to be having side meetings. You are going to be yeah. busy and you're going to be in the national spotlight. So who that person is would be fascinating. But just to pick up on what uh, Sandra was saying at the end, it will be fascinating to watch and the departmental focus. An awful lot of the focus this week has been on the relationship between Shuni Rahali and mm-hmm. Catherine Martin. But um, Alan Kelly, the former Labour leader um, who does sit on the Public Accounts Committee, was really zoning in on his contribution in the Doyle yesterday in relation to what department officials knew, when did they know it, did they appraise the Secretary General of the Department, the new one, did they uh, appraise the Minister, and if they didn't appraise the Minister of Ortiz changes, why not, and why didn't the Minister know what her officials knew? So there's a, a, a real driver um, still on this one. And of course, still unanswered questions. We understand the media committee is to seek written submissions uh, from some of the key witnesses who haven't been able, due to health reasons, uh, to appear before it. Key there would be uh, D Forbes, I suppose, and and Jim Jennings. And Shuni Rahla. There was a decision of the committee um, on last Tuesday that they would write to Miss Rally to hear her side of the story. And of course, the minister spoke this week about her now retired uh, chief civil servant, Ms Licken, who was also involved in all of this. So again, the question being, uh, because 
we've had. I know. <laughs> question. Yeah, I know. How do you simplify it? To, where does this end? How does this end? Is there a way out of this, or are we, you know, caught in some kind of Groundhog Day? No, I think we're in a, in, in a time warp. Um, until such a time as you've got both those committee reports, you've got the two government independent reports into governance and and how things were done in the workplace and then uh, if he is still in place um, and I think he will be the Director General Kevin Barker is bringing out his strategy up to 2028 and it's only at that point once you get through all that then the focus kicks into the real big one which is government funding of public service media um, so I think we have to walk through the mire until probably around May and it's only at that stage you begin to look to future and what those future plans might be that some people like Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, have been floating about. Maybe we need to have some competition over a public service budget as opposed to just giving loads of cash to RT. Uh, government ministers and senior party leaders, though, still adamant that they want to make a decision on this before the recess. Now, the recess is July and we wouldn't expect a decision before the local and European elections. It does seem that maybe... All this does mean that that push towards exchequer funding might be less likely. Um, there's certainly very strong views around Cabinet that the public still should contribute. The Finance Minister, Michael McGrath yeah. and Pascal Dunn, who are doubling down on that today, are maybe a hybrid where there's some exchequer funding, but the public yeah. contributes something. Are you toughen up the collection? Uh, but the only way to get it through Cabinet, I think, is maybe some sort of compromise around all of that. Yeah, but we should also remember that Taoiseach had us all up in Avondale in September of last year, saying they would take a decision on public service funding yeah. before the end of the year. And now we're hearing, it's like that was 2023. Now it's definitely going to be taken before mid-July yeah. 2024. Who knows? It wouldn't surprise anyone if it went in I later think the, the key year. phrase is Michael McGrath was saying, uh, didn't he, that there would need to be a period of calm uh, before the government would be able to take such a decision. And we seem to be a long way uh, from any period It's politically of astute. I mean, yeah. it's just not the time to take that decision right now. Let's talk about something that's been causing, um, well, some debate within Fine Gael and Sinn Féin. And of course, this was the European Parliament vote uh, this week on the Nature Restoration yeah. Law. We had Fine Gael uh, MEPs rebelling against the European People's Party uh, and supporting it. Um but Chris McManus, the Sinn Féin MEP, what happened to his vote? Was just, this is a big, huge piece of law. And it's probably worth just spelling out that the environmental assessment is that 80% of our habitats are in some way in danger. So what we have to do is to try and set targets to overcome that. So you've got two targets. One is up to 2030, so restoration of habitats, 20% of it up to the year 2030, and then all of them have been done by um, 2050. And an awful lot of that is down to historical stuff, the way we built. Um, some of it's down to spatial, some of it's down to farming, some of it's down to design. But the political thing, and um, that all came, was passed before by the European Parliament by around 54 votes uh, last week. And so the question has been is, um, people have been arguing, is it effective enough? Um, is there more money on the table to help farmers change? And where is the actual focus or is this another EU mm. pie-in-the-sky target? But when it came, comes politically, and um, you might know, but Sanders, our nature correspondent on this podcast and is on top of all of these things, um, that the two things that stood out was one, Fine Gael did not go along with the European People's Party, that grouping which it's a part of, and supported this particular law. And we and, had many green TDs applauding them. 
Exactly. Yes. And then when it came to Sinn Féin, it seemed as if they were going to back it and then didn't. And the reason they say they didn't back it because they had six red lines, one of them related to funding. There wasn't additional funding, so they didn't back it. And then their own MEP was in a bit of bother on that one because the person who talks an awful lot about climate action and biodiversity is a former MEP, Sinn Féin, who's currently a senator. And she said it was good news that the law had been passed. So it was all up in the air. And apparently Chris McManus is going to be uh, on a programme I know many of you will be watching avidly, but do tune in uh, this Saturday morning on RTE1 at half ten because it's discussed there. And apparently a number of the other other MEPs were, you know, tackling Chris McManus uh, about because Sinn Féin certainly has, you know, been shifting positions backwards and forwards on this one. Yes. Uh, quite if, a lot. If you uh, do apparently a troll, he says yeah. it's a broad church. That's the answer, isn't it? If you do a troll on some of his statements, Chris McManus, last June, when there were some of these preliminary votes at the EU Parliament, he supported the nature restoration law. Now, Sinn Féin did say in intervening months that they were pushing for more changes to it and, and more uh, gains for farmers. But there does seem to be an issue there within the party. And I think coming up to the European elections, it's going to be a big point of focus for, say, the Greens, for Fine Gael. Lynn Boylan is running in Dublin. She does seem to have a contrary par- uh, policy now to the rest of the Sinn Féin party. She's going to be pushed on that. Kieran Cuff well, already keen to push that. issues in politics, isn't it? The Close. environment. Yes. yes. And as a candidate and, you and know. She, but she's going to be asked to explain how she seems to personally support the nature restoration law. She tweeted about this this week. And yet uh, their party, their only MEP, voted against this landmark law in the EU Parliament. And there does appear to be an mm. issue there. She does have like she has a master's in, in climate. climate. So she's someone who knows her onions. Um, she's participates in those climate action committees. Um, her interventions are on point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be fascinating to see um, what way it goes. But I mean, this issue of having a go with Sinn Féin on the question of climate action has been a long running one. Eamon Ryan loves it when he sees Sinn Féin and he gets a chance to talk about them when they're going to have a go uh, and, you know, putting a pause or a freeze on green taxes. Um, Matt Carty has been challenged on some of his statements when he was the agriculture spokesperson. Um, So, I mean, this is an issue that the other parties really like talking about when it comes to Sinn Féin. Yeah, but do Fine Gael like talking about the fact that Patrick O'Donovan, uh, the Minister of State, was not very happy at all with his um, MEP colleagues for the vote on the restoration law? And in fact, uh, he was echoing a lot of the concerns that farmers here and across Europe. Maybe Fine Gael likes Sinn Féin as a broad church which accommodates <laughs> many views. <laughs> Take me to church. We'll have to start singing Hosier. Um, it's just over a week to go now to the referendums. Um, You'd hardly know. Um, well, no, I'm starting to see posters around the place. <laughs> There's a few. And, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And people are starting to talk about it. Um Really? No, actually, yeah, I've been running into people who started asking about it and right. chatting about it. As in asking you because they, they recognise you or like among friends? Because um, I have, among my friends, no one is talking about yeah. it. Yeah, I concur with that. We don't we don't have very highbrow friends <laughs> exactly. that are engaged I'm in the about it, the shops and the physio <laughs> and places like that. Um, anyhow, um, yeah, just over a week. To, so we, we're kind of at this stage because... Um, Obviously, you know, any question uh, for the Constitution, there's a lot of debate backwards and forwards. So we're kind of at this stage seeing, if you like, the issues clarify around the two questions that people will be asked to vote on. And in terms of the one on marriage and durable relationships, we seem to have the yes argument about recognise the reality of who we all are and, and vindicate them. And on the no side on that one, it seems to be a question about 
what the wording means in terms of durable relationships and what the effect of putting that into the Constitution would be. Have I done well so far? Yes, I think exactly. (laughs) The family referendum has really distilled down, the argument has distilled down around that point about what does durable relationships mean? The government say that it means, you know, sort of a long lasting uh, relationship. Others say it's simply not clearly defined. People like Senator Michael McDool are saying that in the future, this could have implications for all types of things like inheritance tax and, and different rights. And then on the care side, the care referendum, uh, it's been really kind of unpredictable, I suppose, for the government to deal with because you have arguments against the referendum on a sort of a wide spectrum. There's a wide spectrum of, of opinion there. You've got people like Senator Tom Clonan saying that this pushes everything back onto families to look after uh, individuals. Uh, and he's advocating against So he's basically it. saying it doesn't go far enough. No. Yeah. Yes, he is. He and is. then there are also people concerned about the removing the language about the effect of the work that, and the support to the state that women by their work in the home give. Yes, but I think Senator Clonan is actually making a point that this is a negative change, not just that it's uh, not going far enough. He actually thinks this is a negative change because he thinks he, it so pushes... So backwards. It, yes, it yeah. pushes responsibility back onto individual families, that it sort of would enshrine that into law or into the Constitution. Then on the other side, you've got uh, uh, people who say it doesn't go far enough. Then... Um, People in favour of the care referendum, you've got family carers coming out and, and people like the one fa- parent family groups saying that this is important. It recognises care, it values care. And it's been interesting. We had the Social Democrats this week saying, you know, in the spirit of the referendum, the government will need to go further on vindicating the rights of people with disability. And I think even Minister Roderick O'Gorman has said that down the line, there might have to be a referendum on that very question. Yeah, what you've seen um, from opposition parties is a real grudging sense that um, we don't think it goes far enough. We don't think it's worded well enough. Um, You could have had accompanying legislation. You could have clarified so much and you haven't. You haven't gone anywhere close to what the Citizens Assembly were recommending. But nonetheless, we're going to um, say we support. But saying we support probably means that that's all they're going to do. They're going to stay at home. They're not going to campaign for it. And people before Profit Solidarity saying the exact same thing as well in the Doyle. Um, And so it's a real question as to what is going to happen um, the weekend after next because turnout is one thing. And then that second question of who's going to be motivated to come out. If the public, if the voting public believes that it's a bit wishy-washy then they might just decide, sure, what's the point? And if they don't come out, this um, yeah. both referendums could be But it also taps into that spirit of, you know, this country has changed and we want to recognise the diversity of who we are in terms of family structures and care structures now. That's certainly what yeah. the government will be hoping and that's where the fight will be in that closing week. So talking right. about the importance of it from the government side and from, uh, from those who are opposed to it saying it's a cause of concern, you should be worried about this. What's yeah. the lowest poll we've ever had in a referendum? It seems to be 1979, the university uh, seats, a referendum on the university seats and adoption rights, 28.6%. So there is fears that there could be a record low in this poll because it has been very low key. There is some other data pointing to a lot of interest in the past week. 37,000 people added to the electoral register in the 48 hours before it closed this week. But there is a caveat with that. Not all of those will translate into new voters. Some people might be changing their address. But there is concern in in government circles that you won't have enough people. I do think over the final week, the government will be trying to make high level arguments that this is about valuing care. It's about uh, cherishing you know single parent families, children who are born outside of marriage. They're going to say the other side are arguing on technical points, but the other the no sides will say that the technical 
technical points are really important. And if you're concerned about it, then make sure that you keep it out of the Constitution. And the, the great crack is that we learned from Cabinet is that definitely the Patents Court referendum, the one everyone is really talking about, is going to be held at the same time as the local and European elections. So that's defo happening. Something to look forward Something to and to put in your diary. Uh, what is the latest, by the way, on the European elections? Let's talk about uh, Fianna Fáil and what's happening in Midlands Northwest. Yes, well, they've decided to go for a supersized ticket there because uh, Barry Cowan came through the selection convention a few weeks ago, just ahead of Neil Blaney, who came second, and Lisa Chambers. So Barry Cowan was selected. They did always say they might add somebody else. Today, they've decided to add both of those senators. Geographically, it kind of makes sense. You'll have Donegal, Mayo, Midlands, so it covers the entire constituency. Also, you've got a woman on the ticket, so you can counter that male pale and stale argument. You know that well, that's the one that Maria Walsh, for, who's, yes. been, who's challenging for Fine Gael there, has been advancing. Exactly. Yes. Um, and we're also going to see um, Aintu leader Padre Tobin running there as well, hasn't he? In you? Midlands Northwest, yes. Yes, exactly. and Chris so. M- Michelle Gildenew, um Yes will be running for Sinn Féin along right. with Chris McManus. And Rory Hearn, also for the Social Democrats, uh, running in Midlands no- Northwest. Okie doke. Uh, so certainly uh, it's, it's, getting, um, it's getting interesting it's in, terms, uh, in terms of all of that. And Dublin is going to be very interesting as well in terms of the... Because traditionally there's always been two lefts, hasn't there, for the past few elections. There's yeah. been, if you'd like, the Sinn Féin seat and another left seat. And we're looking at a lot of competition uh, emerging there, aren't we? Yeah, I think we haven't quite got to the same stage in Dublin as mm-hmm. we have in yeah. other constituencies. So, for, say, for example, we now know that from a Fine Gael point of view, that centre-right vote, that Senator Regina Doherty is the person who's been selected by their convention, but are they going to run a second? And would that be Barry Ward? You couldn't imagine, because he came second in the convention, you couldn't really imagine they're going to run three candidates like Fianna Fáil. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of their vote would be in Dublin would be on the south side, wouldn't it, you'd have thought? Well, the, well, the party would advocate that it picks up votes from all over and there's reference where Francis Fitzgerald had been okay. um, as well out, out in West Dublin. So that's one ticket. Then you've got on Fianna Fáil, Barry Andrews sitting TD, he's going to be going again. Mm-hmm. We've got then if it's your shift over towards the spectrum on the, on the left, um, Claire Daly is um, going to be standing again. But we also know the people before Prophets, Breed Smith, is mm-hmm. going to be standing as well. And I was at that uh, meeting where it was announced, first of all, she said she wasn't going to get involved in politics. She was retiring. Now she's back. Um, and the question would be, what impact will Breedsmith have, um, who is a very articulate, a good campaigner, on Claire Daly's vote? Yeah. Is it possible that they could capture those two left seats or could it actually split the vote and neither of them get in? And I think that's going to be something that Aon O'Reardon, for example, is going to be wanting to back, saying he's a left candidate, but who's supportive yeah. of the European project rather than a critic of it. Um, and so, of course, Lynn Boylan will be trying to get that seat back for Sinn Féin and oh, with Dahi Doolan. Absolutely. And once again, um, we're going to have the chance to be asking Lynn Boylan, is it the case that you're going to spend the five years uh, at the European Parliament because her name had been very closely associated with Dublin Southwest, and if, for example, she did decide to stand at the general election, then Dahi Doolan would be the person who would take over in the European Parliament. So, is that a plan? Yes. Just exactly where where does she stand? So, still some questions in Dublin, and an awful lot to look forward to. A lot of moving pieces in an election year, and of course, they've all got to think about quotas and gender balance, and because in, in not necessarily in terms the, of the Europeans, but in terms of locals and generals. So 
all trying to... Well, the parties need to get the women in in the local elections. The gender quotas don't apply, apply. but they need the women there to then run for the general election yeah. when it's going to be 40%. And so you could have that. It's like Holly Kearns, um, the Social Democrats, you know, scraped in by mm. a couple of votes in local elections. Then suddenly she's a TD and now she's sitting there as uh, um, the leader of the party. So things can happen quickly. Before we go... Um, there's another story I want to talk to you about, Paul. And of course, um, you've been reporting um, for RTE um, from Israel on the situation in Gaza. You've been doing some of that reporting since October the, uh, 7th. And we know that the situation in Gaza is worsening by the day. Um, and a petition, an open petition to uh, to Israel and to Egypt, to the embassies of both, to open the Rafa crossing and let foreign correspondents in. That was started by Sky's Alex Crawford. It's been signed by correspondents from all over the world. There's also in there um, the point being made that foreign correspondents need to go in because the Palestinians in Gaza who have been, while going through, while watching their families you know, die, be injured, face that, that threat themselves. They have been nonetheless doing their jobs. Yeah. Um, the importance of that, the likelihood of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that this petition was signed by more than 50, an awful lot of big UK and US networks. But the sentiment contained in the document will be shared by all journalists, including myself, which is that um, we need to have access um, I've worked in many um, wars and conflicts. I've always been able to get access. This is unique in which we're being closed off uh, from a war which has been going on for four months. Um, today, Thursday, the death toll, according to the um, uh, the Gaza Health Ministry, has hit 30,000, an unbelievable statistic. When I was in Israel, we were pushing to try and get to Gaza, but it wasn't possible. We were prevented by the Israeli Defence Forces. Um, who, depending who you're talking to, would say, this is in your own best interest in your own safety because there's a war going on so we can't allow you to go in. And that just basically subverts everything journalism is about, where the eyes, the ears, we need to be on the ground, not just saying and repeating what people are telling us, but being able to bear witness as the expression goes. So I think there's a mounting pressure um, from journalists right around the world to have access. Um, hopefully, and I think everyone hopes that this horrendous war is going to end and that the death toll um, no longer increases. But there's we a lot need of talk to about Ramadan. I think that's it. the 10th of March, isn't it? So exactly, be, the holy month of Ramadan yeah. and the Islamic calendar. Yeah. So, how, how substantial a landmark do you think that is? Because there has been, you know, obviously we had President Biden eating his ice cream, expecting that there could be a deal as soon as Monday. But No, I don't, I don't think it will be by, by Monday, but there's an awful lot of work gone into it. So I think that's basically where we're going towards. So, even if it isn't Monday or agreements being reached sort of in the next two weeks, the pressure's on. The question is what happens after? Is it the case that if there is a cessation of hostilities or a full ceasefire, which leads on to some form of negotiations, yeah. um, if there are builders going into Gaza, you can't not have journalists going into Gaza. And at the earliest possible opportunity, those um, gates have to be opened and people have to be allowed in. Um, it is just not good enough to prevent people from who are uh, media workers from going in there. And you mentioned in your introduction just to this segment is that the horrendous price which has been paid by uh, journalists in Gaza, more than 100 of them killed, many of them, as you said, their families and um, killed in Israeli airstrikes as well. Um, and this is something which we have grave, grave concerns about because of the cost, the human price which is being paid. 
All right. We leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and let's hope that uh, we're able to talk to you soon from Gaza. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, follow and subscribe, if you will. We'll be back with you again uh, next Thursday. So till then, from Sandra, Paul and me, goodbye. Goodbye.